On this special Polster edition of the Texas Tribune Tribcast, we'll talk about the latest University of Texas, Texas Tribune poll from Trump to Bonin to guns to climate and everything in between. But before I do, before we do, I'd like to thank today's Tribcast sponsors. Raise Your Hand Texas. Raise Your Hand is strengthening public education for the future because the future of Texas is in our public schools. More at raiseyourhandtexas.org. And the Meadows Mental Health Policy Institute. Meadows Mental Health Policy Institute's vision for Texas is to be the national leader in treating people with mental health needs. More at texasstateofmind.org. Hello, this is Ross Ramsey here on Thursday, November 7th with a pollster edition of the Texas Tribune Tribcast. I'm joined this week by our pollsters, Josh Blank, Research Director of the Texas Politics Project. Oh, hello. Oh, hi. Sorry. Uh, Jim Henson, (laughs) who teaches government and heads the Texas Politics Project. Wink and a nod. Yeah, you say Wink and a nod. Fine. And (laughs) this is going really well. And Darren Shaw, a government professor and with Henson, the co-director of the poll. Good morning, Ross. As always, we will take your questions in real time on Twitter and Facebook. You can pose those using the hashtag, hashtag TribFest. Um, Dive right in. We started, you know, uh, kind of with impeachment and Trump and reelect and all of that. Um, Just uh, which part of that stuck out to you? You want the dessert first? Sure. Is that what you want? I do want dessert first. (laughs) Strawberries. The whipped cream to you, Dr. Shaw. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I guess we'll supposed to start with impeachment and then uh, segue seamlessly into uh, some of the uh, national ballot numbers or sure. the, the pres race. Um, I, there's nothing unexpected here, I don't think. Um, I guess uh, going into a poll like this, uh, we're cognizant of the fact that it's you know it's a red state, it's a plurality Republican state, um, so we expect it all things being equal to be about you know maybe five points off the national average. So if uh, you know, Trump's riding at uh, 42, you know, percent approval now. So we expect something in the mid to high 50s in a state like Texas, mid to high 40s in a state like Texas. And uh, so that was sort of our expectation with respect to impeachment, that you you see the impeachment numbers bumping up close to 50 percent nationally. So in a state like Texas, we expect it to be, you know, the low 40s, maybe, maybe right. a little more than that. And that's about what you get. Um, yeah, I, I think Jim Henson has pointed out consistently as as Trump's proceeded in office, uh, the fact that Republicans coalesced around the president pretty quickly, um, you know, maybe more quickly than you might have expected, given that Texas didn't really embrace him in the election. You know, he kind of underperformed here. Um, but we don't see, and correct me if I'm wrong, we don't see much leakage here on the Republican side. They seem to have gotten the email or the memo pretty quickly on impeachment. And so it's polarized here um, at least as quick, perhaps more quickly than it has nationally. I mean, I think if they're on the same email list that I'm on, they're getting a lot of email. Yeah. <laughs> but, well, you know, I think, you know, Josh and I talked, have talked about, you know, all three of us have talked about this, actually all four of us. Right. I mean, the one thing is hiding in those numbers that's really interesting are independence. And, you know, I think we've, as we said to Ross, I think when we talked to you about the story, we've spent several years sort of ignoring independence, nothing personal. But because in a one-party state like Texas, they just didn't seem to matter. Well, and they've tended to look like um, milder versions of Republicans. Yeah, I mean, you know, they tend to they tend to lean conservative. And when it comes down, you know, it's and they're one of the factors when we look at trial ballots versus election outcomes. 
that you have to factor in because they do tend to lean disproportionately towards Republican candidates if they wind up going to vote. Right. right. Yeah. And I mean, the other, I mean, the one caveat I'll make to, to Darren's comment about around the, the coalescing of Republicans around the president is we did see something. We'll have to kind of see whether this maintains as we move into, you know, more, you know, more disclosure in the impeachment inquiry and then some more polling. But one surprising thing was the 20% of, uh, conservative, so, uh, conservative identifiers, people identify as conservatives, right. said that the impeachment inquiry was justified and 18% said that the president should be removed from office. Now, first I thought, oh, okay, what, let me, is there something wrong with the data, honestly, which is, you know, my basic reaction when I see anything interesting. <laughs> so then I go in and I start looking at the that data. That can't be right. <laughs> yeah, and, and, not, and not surprisingly, you know, if you look at where, where that was concentrated, it was concentrated in, you know, we ask it on a seven-point scale, so you can be extremely conservative, somewhat conservative, you can lean conservative, And this moderate. is independent of which party you're in. You just right, say this where is I independent. This right. is just completely different how do you question. think right. of yourself right. ideologically? And this was really housed in the people who identified as the most conservative. Right. And also, a lot of those people had, you know, weaker attachments to the Republican Party. So this, you know, in some ways, this is sort of a, a print. I mean, it looks like a principled conservative reticence to actually uh, align with sort of their conservative brethren around the president. Two, two things to note real quickly, Ross. The first is we asked about whether the, you know, the Congress was justified in the impeachment investigation. Right. That that's kind of the the, the money question here, as opposed to, you know, should the Short president of impeachment should right, they look right, at it? exactly should the president be impeached and removed from office? So right. we're talking about it. And I think that's why the numbers tend to be slightly. So it's 46 say yes and 42 mm-hmm. say no. Um, that's not the same as should the president be impeached. And the what Jim alluded to was independence. 46% said yes, the impeachment uh, investigation is justified. 32% said no. So in, in, as Jim pointed out, that's, that's plus 14 kind of pro-impeach, or at least open, open to the impeachment investigation. And, right. and so that, that was the thing that I think we we thought was pretty interesting here. But, but but when it comes to actually impeaching the president based on what we know right now... Right. Removing it, him. Removing right. from, from office. This was the early removal. Right. right. Removing right. from office. Independents are split currently at 34 saying yes and 33 saying no and the rest being unsure. So I mean, part of this right. is there is still a lot to learn and we expect right. these numbers to move. Yeah, 10-12% when it comes to actually removing him. And the question was worded, I think, you know, in our mind, very fairly, like, would you, you know, do you think basically has he taken actions while in office to justify his removal before the end of his term? So there's no, there's really no hiding place in there. Well, if I recall right, even on, even the Democrats were a little bit less than, I mean, they were, I think it was 79% were for removing him, but that's a significant number of Democrats saying, wait a minute, compared to the first question. Right. Yeah. And yeah. it's, it, it is true that it's always the case that question wording matters and response right. option matters. Um, and, you know, there's simple things. I mean, the audience would, I think, love our hour-long conversations about whether we ought to explain that the House impeaches and the Senate <laughs> removes and ought that to be embedded in the, you right. know. And it's true. All of that matters. And so we, we encourage people to go online and take a look at the, you know, the actual text to, to, to kind of see what we're asking and what we're not. And right. I did one more thing to that. I mean, one of the things, uh, you know, in the way that we ask this question and that we can't know is to the extent that there are Democrats who are reticent about removal at this point and, and why they're interested in investigating but not necessarily endorsing removals. We can't really know why. Is that because they think he hasn't taken actions that justify right. removal? Or is that a political calculation? Because increasingly people talk about these sort of, you know, well, what – what is this? What effect is this going to have on the 2020 campaign Might this if he gets acquitted? Yeah, right. What, this, if, so, right. what if it helps him? So it's hard yeah. to know whether that resistance to impeachment is a reflection of the facts on the ground or sort of a political calculation. Right, right. So you take that and you say, okay, so they're, you know, they are where they are on impeachment, but 
overall, um, Trump's um, reelect numbers are relatively flat. I mean, it was 48% would uh, either definitely or probably vote to reelect him. 52% would either probably or um, maybe vote against him. Probably then, or definitely. Or yeah. Probably or definitely. Couldn't remember the words. And then um, if you do matchups with the Democrats, they go, okay, never mind all of that. We like Trump better. <laughs> yeah. I, you know, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, I'm, I want, I'm going to okay, explain why to, that makes a lot of well, sense. <laughs> no, it does. It, well, here, you do the Jesus part and then I'll do the Democratic <laughs> primary part. Okay. Not that, see, I just, spoiler alert. Yes. <laughs> I stepped on his best line. Right. <laughs> it is. We, we do. As Jim, was that guy in the poll? Like, as, <laughs> as Jim alluded to, the, the pure reelect question is often referred to as the Jesus question. So in other words, would you vote for Trump or some unnamed fill in with your imagination right um, your messiah democratic candidate right. or not even democrat just candidate and and so i think uh, a messiah or even a democrat right? <laughs> <laughs> okay right. got it so you've got <laughs> i i think uh, what you end up with is a is a very baseline estimate about the president's core right. support and and people can pour into the you know hypothetical opponent their hopes and dreams uh in, in that sense, I think Democrats would look at this and feel pretty good. You know, wow, I mean, in a state like Texas, Donald Trump's pure reelect numbers are pretty low. But as you pointed out, then we get to... Uh, <laughs> Neither Joe Biden, Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders, Beto O'Rourke, or Julian Castro are messiahs, yeah. per se. Right. right. <laughs> right. Um, you know, more seriously, you know, it's something to put somebody, particularly in a crowded, competitive Democratic primary, where some number of people are, at this point, have a preferred candidate. They may be willing to change their minds, as the numbers show. Right. But nonetheless, you're giving somebody you're giving somebody a, a concrete choice that activates particular attitudes, predispositions, views of that person. It's inevitably going to be less than, and it's going to be. I think it's going to be a lot less than in a very crowded, underdetermined, high visibility primary that we're seeing on the Democratic side. Yeah, I mean, I think you know you're both highlighting. There's there's two reasons for the, the divergence in those numbers. I mean, one you could say is the fact that you know Democrats would say you know Democrats who overwhelmingly disapprove of the president automatically are going to say they would vote against him. But right. then when you ask them, well, what about for this person? Some of them are going to have reticence about a particular candidate or even some number of particular candidates. For Republicans, when you ask them that general reelect question, they're just evaluating the president. And I already mentioned sort of some potential indications of sort of extreme conservative discontent, but also once we get to the actual campaign season and those people who identify as extremely conservative have a choice between Donald Trump, who they may have some reticence about, and Elizabeth Warren, all of a sudden they're probably going to come back and say, you know, given the alternatives, I can stick with this guy who I've got some reticence about, or I can vote for this person who's going to fundamentally remake capitalism in America. Right. Yeah, it's going to be a pretty easy choice. You're measuring, right. you know, related but still pretty distinct things. Yeah. Right. Some. If, if I were a Democrat, what I would take away from a positive point of view on the matchups is that Trump's, you know, upper numbers are all, they're the same. He draws 46 against Biden, 46 against Warren, 45 Sanders, 47 against O'Rourke, and 46 against, I mean, it's basically 46, 47, 48%, right. period. Right. Um, it, it's what well, the variance is in the Democrat, you know, so the, I guess the best performing candidate would be Sanders, who's at, you know, 40. Um, Five point actually, difference from O'Rourke, right? 41. Yeah. And, and yeah, so it's, you get a six point difference. Sanders is, is only five points down. But that's where the variance is. Like O'Rourke draws 41 in our poll, Castro draws 33. But at the same time, the problem for Democrats with these numbers is historically, this is, I mean, this is a registered voter poll. So we're right. not sitting here and saying this is what we think the 2020 electorate is going to look like because that's, you know, a million. That's a year years from now. From, it feels like a million years from now. A million news cycles. <laughs> a million news cycles right. from now. 
Um, so these are registered voters. And normally as we move from registered voters to likely voters, the sample of voters actually usually gets more conservative. I mean, this is right. what we expect. Democrats rely on low propensity voters. Republicans rely more often on, on much more reliable voters. And so to see with a registered voter poll even this much out and this polarizing a president, Democrats still being this far apart, you know, you have to wonder now, look, you know, turnout's going to be a big factor, obviously, in the 2020 election. But you do wonder as you actually get from the registered voter pool to the people who are actually going to show up, whether this number doesn't maybe stretch back out to the eight or nine points that he actually won in 2016 with. Right. Yeah, two, two small demographic points. The, the first is that um, Trump's lead over all these, hypo, these hypothetical Democratic candidates, they're real candidates, hypothetical nominees, uh, is entirely driven by men. Democrats are people too, Darren. Yeah, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. <laughs> Democrats Cap are people too, my friend. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> what you're seeing is that it, we're seeing a dead heat across the board here with respect to women uh, and a 17-point Trump lead with men. So the, the gender gap is a real thing. It's displaced right. up in Texas compared to other places, so it's really stark. Uh, the other thing, and this, I, I don't know the extent to which I believe this. When you start talking about subsamples, you know, it, it gets a little dicey. You have small sample sizes, et cetera. Right. But, but Trump's trailing amongst Latinos by between 10 and 15 points. I, I think the Trump people would be ecstatic if they only lost... Latinos nationally by 10 or 15 points. I mean, there's no there's no way a Democrat wins nationally if that's the case. Texas is predominantly Mexican as opposed to a more diverse Hispanic population like in California and Florida and other places. So all those, and, and it's a small sample size, right. so all of those caveats noted, um, he's performing pretty well, at least in this poll with that group. I, let me hit on something really uh, quickly that you mentioned when we were talking earlier this week, Darren, about enthusiasm of voters, that the Republican voters right now seem much more enthusiastic about this election than the Democrats do? And, and what does that mean, if anything? Sure. Well, the, the, the raw numbers, we, this is one of those where the upper end of the scale has to actually include some real fine gradation because if you ask people just, are you very enthusiastic? People go, yeah, I'm very enthusiastic. Um, so we, we actually distinguish be, exactly, <laughs> between extremely, very, somewhat, Right, not at all. Right, so we, we're trying to tease out some top-end variation. So you get 50% of people in Texas a year out saying they're extremely enthusiastic about the election. For the Democrats, that number is 49% saying extremely. For the Republicans, it's 59, which is not what we have seen nationally. And nationally, those numbers are almost flipped, where there's a huh. five to ten point Democratic advantage. The I Republicans mean, are a little depressed in the yeah. The Democrats, the Democrats can't can't wait to go out and vote against Trump and and you know kind of strike back. And but in Texas, I was surprised. That, now, by the way, it's not that the Democratic numbers in Texas are low. This far out, they're quite high. But I was really surprised the Republican top-end numbers here on enthusiasm were that high. Yeah, and I mean, we'll have to see how this tracks over time. But I mean, a lot of the growth was among Republican men and uh, non-college educated Republicans. And there's a little Republican uptick over the last time we asked. And and I'm wondering how much that's a reflection of the of the impeachment investigation yeah. and sort of, you know, the party rallying around the president. Right, right. So, I mean, in terms of like at least first, you know, hot take on, you know, impact of the impeachment investigation on enthusiasm on both sides seems to be affecting Republicans in a more positive way and not really having much of an impact on Democrats. Okay. Hey, Nick, you've had the data too long for a hot take, dude. Well, I just mean the <laughs> it's data. It's, take. One, it's, pretty, it's, it's one point. It's one data point. It's one data point. It's a somewhat hot take. Yeah. Um, one data point. Warmed over take. So I, right. I, I don't want to spend a lot of time on the Senate, but it looks like we don't have a race here yet. Uh, we, there's, a, there's a Senate race? We've Right. We pulled the, we did, we did a quick poll in September just of Democratic voters 
and found that most of them didn't know their candidates. Here we are six or seven weeks after that poll. They still don't know who their candidates are. Yeah. Um, and among the unknown candidates, MJ Hager is doing best. Yeah. I, you know, I, I'm not, I'm not too surprised that that six, seven weeks didn't make that much difference, but yeah, this, you know, the, there's not really not even that much to say about these numbers. It just looks like themselves. a race that's not underway yet. Yeah, yeah. If, the, this, if, you know, I keep, I've been saying, you know, this race is very unformed. Nobody's, right. pay, you know, very few people are paying attention to it. Um, and it's a candidate field that just does not have a lot of resonance with Democrats statewide. Yeah. And, it, and it's, I mean, it's a tough position to be in, right? I mean, in the sense you have a bunch of candidates who aren't that well known, or if they are known, it's it's mostly in a regional context. In, you know, what people talk about all the time is this huge state that's expensive to campaign in. And I mean, I think for all these candidates, even if they had the resources right now to try to drive up their name ID, which wouldn't be a bad idea if they did, there's still a question of, well, is now the time to do that? Or, I mean, do we want to save our powder for the general election or a likely runoff or what have you? And so this is just, this race feels like it's going to be in a stasis, at least, you know, for a while. Until somebody gets a big infusion of money and decides to spend it. If somebody gets and a big I, infusion of money and, I, and, and I think you were it. saying this in the offline, Ross, when we were first looking at these numbers, not to a little bit of back, you know, right behind the scenes. But I do think the first person that can bring in some money and spend it, you know, potentially has an equal, advantage here, right? You know, probably you know makes a little bit of a dent, and and really that becomes a little bit of the starter pistol for this thing. Yeah, well, almost I, just yeah. a say my name campaign, right? Yeah, yeah I'm I, I'm prob I certainly share all these sentiments. I'm probably a little more bullish on uh, Hager given these numbers, mostly because of the extremely enthusiastic number amongst voters who say they're extremely enthusiastic. Uh, she's at 19. Oh, is that right? So yeah. she was at 12 overall. 12 overall, but 19 amongst those who say they're extremely enthusiastic. And, you know, the next highest vote getter, I guess, is uh, is Hernandez with 7%. So that, that lead stretches out. I, I think, yeah. I, I think one, she's, Hagar's most likely to get the money that we're right. talking about on the basis of numbers like these. But She ran a pretty good race against John yeah, Carter in know, the 2018 election. Exactly. Right. So, I mean, 19 is not 50%, but... But she's, I, also, I, she's also 20 I, among self-identified liberals. So if you think about the people who are likely to participate in the Democratic primary, she has right. a good starting point to, to launch off from. Okay, okay. Uh, the other un, unknown politician who's probably happy to be unknown is uh, Dennis Bonin right now. Uh, who? <laughs> <laughs> it's, you know, I mean, uh, this is one of those things, you know, speakers of the Texas House are generally, you know, it's a ministerial position from the standpoint of most voters. They don't know... Who it is necessarily, it doesn't matter to them most of the time who it is. Yeah. Dennis Bonin's in the middle of a, or at the end of a yeah. big scandal and leaving office and 68% of voters have little or no idea what that's all about. If only the general electorate elected the speaker. <laughs> He'd be safe. <laughs> I think yeah. it, it really does come under the heading of a tree falls in the forest and nobody's around. I mean, I, you know, we've talked a lot about after the session, and I think the consensus was it was a productive session, it was a good session, people had a, a pretty good feeling, and then this, you know, this unbelievable story of hubris and, right. you know, poor judgment, however else you want to call it, kind of captured our attention during the summer when there wasn't a lot else going on, but voters don't... It's don't, like a really good show on an obscure cable channel. Yeah, <laughs> they, didn't, they didn't know who he yeah. was, and so the I mean, fact the people, that he did something... Among was, the people who did know who he was, his numbers went down a little bit. Yeah, and this was, I mean, but, but but in terms of like, you know, we asked specifically about just how much people heard about, you know, this scandal and, you know, and I would say we've asked things like this in the past, you know, where right. we're kind of sitting here thinking like, 
Well, surely everyone's paying attention to what's going on at Child Protective Services, right? <laughs> sure. Or surely, you know, sure. Yeah. Or surely people know the attorney general has been indicted, right? And usually those numbers are pretty low because Wait, what? Yeah. Because <laughs> we're dorks, right? And we sit here and we're like, everybody knows about this. And, right. and this is sort of a way to make sure that, you know, I think other people don't know. People don't know about this, right. but this was even low for that. Yeah. Right. I mean, we've done again, we've done a lot of these in the past, and this was this was extremely low in terms of knowledge, because people lie. You know, I mean, people will tell you yeah. that they've sure heard about it. Sure, I knew about that. Oh, oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Fewer right. people have heard about it than say probably. <laughs> right. <laughs> Although you know, yeah. Ross, Ross and I talked a little bit about this offline. I mean, I, I you know, I want to move away from, and we're not doing this, I don't think, but I want to move away from an indictment to, uh, of the average voter for not knowing yeah. no. that well, this I guy it, met. I no. mean, what, what do they care? I think they're probably right. I mean, that? in terms right. of the things that influence your life and affect your life, this is probably pretty low on the scale. We know that yep. we were joking that, you know, it's probably more important who the produce manager is at your grocery store because that guy actually touches your lettuce. This, you know, this is a little <laughs> bit once or twice or three times Yuck. removed from your actual life. This is a result that's really for the 12% of people who are paying a lot of attention to this. Right. And most of them live, live and work somewhere around here. Right, yeah. within rock But, but the point is to right. let people know, you know, this is not a big story for most Texans because it did yeah. take place during the summer. It is about internal, you know, legislative right. politics. Yeah. And it is about someone who's not elected statewide. And so it, and it's complicated. Right. Yeah. right. So this is not surprising. But wait, this is wait till they find out about the legislative budget board. <laughs> <laughs> wait till next time. Yeah. Right. Um, so then we move into a bunch of um, pieces of the poll that are about issues. And, you know, to some extent, you know, and we've talked about this before, to some extent, these are about issues, guns, immigration, climate, uh, the mood of the state, things like that. And to some extent, these are just, you know, where do the tribes line up? Um, you know, not completely. I or mean, not. Yeah. We're not, and and I'm 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 kind of curious at looking at these, you know, through that lens as we go. But um, let's start with the gun stuff. After the we had a poll in June, before the two shootings in El Paso and Odessa. So this is our first look at the gun issue since those shootings, and voters look to be pretty much where they were before those shootings. Yeah, I think there, you know, there's not much, you know, there are little spots where we could pick out a few changes, but the overall arc here is that the, the general expectation that I think people have, which is maybe after this shooting, the gun discussion will change. Right. I think the gun discussion has changed a little bit, but it's not because public opinion has changed. And I think what it really underlines as you drill down into these numbers is that you know, the impression that you there is no public will at all for any change to the gun, to the structure of gun laws in Texas is completely false. Right. You know, I mean, when you look at the numbers on, and it's not, it doesn't mean that, oh, it's the opposite is true. And so if you advocate registering automatic weapons or confiscating, confiscating assault rifles or whatever, that you should just proceed because right. that's not going to work either. But it's much more nuanced and it's especially much more nuanced among Republicans. So the top lines here were 51% of voters um, were in favor of stricter gun laws um, that had an interesting gender gap in it. That was, you know, women, 57% of women wanted it and only 43% of men. There were some party differences. And then when you get to specifics like um, background checks, 81%, um, red flag laws, I think was 66 or 68%. 68, yeah. Um, and then assault rifles was a party split. But the overall number was 59% in favor of a ban on so-called assault rifles. Right. Well, yeah. I mean, there's two things going on here. I mean, one, just to elaborate something that Jim was saying there, you know, people know what they think about 
guns and gun violence. This is not a new issue. This is something, if anything, that the attitudes that people have had have been reinforced over a number of years now. We know from previous polling that we've done when we ask about the causes of mass shooting, Democrats are going to line up behind current gun control laws. Republicans are going to line up behind issues of mental health and through personal responsibility, depending on what we're talking about specifically. Right. And so, you know, and then we know on these particular issues that we've polled about before, for the most part, that there's going to be vast Democratic support and then Republicans are going to be more mixed. But but that's what the issue landscape has been. And another mass shooting doesn't change, you know, sort of what people understand about these issues because they're really baked in at this point. People know how they feel. And, you know, there's a there's a reasonableness to both sides' positions on this. I, I, setting aside the particular responses on questions, but you know, there clearly are mental health and you know parenting and issues of that sort. And there clearly are you know issues involving accessibility and enforcement of current gun laws. I, I think Jim's point is really a, a good one to bear in mind, though, and that is that the the public policymakers sort of understand this and they they do things like the red flag law and, and other things, which kind of get at both sides. I mean, there is an attempt here, I think, to craft legislation that, that is realistic, um, or at least to, to get it on the policy table, right? So, so and I, I think that's an important point. So while the numbers on, uh, you know, favorability towards the NRA, assault weapon ban, they're, they're fairly stable over time, move a point or two, these other things that come up that are really specific efforts, they, you know, they, they do kind of, I, I think we've moved, uh, well, we've got about 70% support over the last couple of polls on the red flag law. And so policymakers are taking this into account. At least. Well, and I think the other thing to, uh, I think gets out of, you know, it's a little out of our lane, but that I would say is that in terms of thinking about what the the output of the, po of the political process is, right. this is an area where if the state is becoming more competitive uh, on, a, on a partisan basis, there is a little more potential for movement on this because I think that the, the assumption has been that Republicans are at great risk if they, in, a, in the primaries, if they stand up and say, you know what, I wanna be the reasonable person on gun control, I wanna talk about these things that are in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, right. if not the 90s, and they won't do it because they're afraid of the primary challenge and the influence of interest groups that are powerful at that level. As elected officials, in particular Republican elected officials, have to look to the general election more and think more and think beyond the primaries, right. there's a little bit more space. I don't think we're going to see a huge amount of movement on this, but we've already seen a little bit, and we've already seen examples of this dynamic in other public in other policy areas, in particular public education. Well, you've got the a governor and lieutenant guns. governor who yeah. are kind of moving into this area, and if the polls haven't changed, what is it that changed? Is it a threat of a Democratic? Um, rising democratic strength in a still red state in general elections. I mean, you know, to some extent what Dan Patrick has said over the summer, what Greg Abbott has said over the summer provides some cover to the Republicans that you're talking about. Maybe not in March, but maybe in November. What, yeah, moved, you know, what I, moved here? I, I see them as trial balloons more than, you know, absolute movement, but they wouldn't have bothered with trial balloons five years ago. Yeah, I think it's, I, I do think, and I don't think this is backing off of what we've been saying. Right. I do think there's a cumulative effect that, that, you know, mass shooting on top of mass shooting on top of mass shooting, and, and to have one in your home state, right? You know, to have one in El Paso, I, I think kind of brings this home. And you know, while I not, I'm not sure there's support for, you know, kind of confiscating guns on the one hand versus, you know, complete availability to everybody on the other hand. There is a push on the part of the public to say, can you guys not get anything done? And Republicans in particular, since they've had the keys to the car for quite a t quite a while now, right? I, I think are concerned about, you know, the 
perception. They just haven't done anything on a significant yeah. issue. The right. perception of non-responsiveness. But that, right. yeah, but right. that's actually the point. It's not. It's not the public opinion that's changed. It's the strategic and tactical calculations of elected officials, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. at least potentially. Let's talk about immigration a little bit. Um, have these numbers moved much? They, you know, we we asked a bunch of questions that were in the realm of straight up immigration questions. Some about trade. Some about uh, a couple of interesting questions about culture um, and language. What do you see here? I actually would say, I mean, one of the things that I see in some questions we've asked a number of times is, you know, we've seen a little bit more conservative attitudes among Democrats in Texas when it comes to some of these immigration attitudes. I mean, Republicans, you know, across a range of questions over time generally express a relatively punitive attitude towards illegal immigration, but also a reticence towards legal immigration. Generally, Democrats are on the other side, but I think, you know, one of the things that, you know, you have to consider is the fact that, you know, with everything that's gone on at the border in terms of the surge of undocumented uh, immigrants trying to enter the country over the last, you know, the entire the entirety of the summer and really before that. And asylum that, seekers. And, and, and mm -hmm. asylum seekers. I think Democrats are starting to register immigration as more of an actual problem, whereas before it was sort of perceived as a partisan issue. And so I think you're starting to see a little bit of movement there, and we'll see whether that's durable. But that was sort of the most surprising thing to me in the immigration numbers. You know, in the context of the, I mean, I think something that we can sometimes miss when we start looking for continuity and change is the context of the issue, Oh yeah. you know, has changed a lot, right. not only for Republicans, but also for Democrats. And I think, you know, you're not, we're not talking about, um, you know, dreamers or, you know, amnesty or, you know, path to citizenship, we're talking about a very different kind of facet of immigration, at least as, been, as it's been in the news. Right. Last, and it is, you know, it's, so, it's right. bound, I think, to rattle general kinds of attitudes about this unless we ask about specific things. Mm -hmm. yeah. I, I, my only observation is one we've made several times on several different issues, but it's the subtlety and the diversity of opinion on these issues that you see in a state that's seen as being rib-rocked conservative. Um, you know, on the English only, we asked about support mm -hmm. or opposition to an English only amendment. You have 47% support and 40% oppose. Um, you know, 20% of Republicans oppose that. Ending bilingual education, 41% support that. 48% oppose ending bilingual education, including one third of Republicans. Right. So, you know, again, we, we actually take pleasure in, in, you know, educating our uh, <laughs> non-Texas <laughs> Uh, friends and colleagues uh, about the fact that Texas is a pretty big and pretty diverse state. Um, right. now, now, those numbers, by the way, I don't know if they've changed much because I don't even know that we've asked them. Not for a long time. Not for a long time. So, yeah, it's one of the reasons we asked them. We asked them like eight or nine years ago. Or right, so. right. But I, I, I really do like yeah. the, the questions about uh, English only and bilingual. I mean, they're, I think they're visceral. Uh, they're, they're obviously legitimate public policy, but they're visceral and they're kind of evocative of broader sentiment. And, and so that you get... Basically, 40 versus 48 on those questions, I think is really interesting. Well, there are also questions where we haven't seen anybody from either side up on a soapbox for a while. So it's not like you're getting a cue from Austin, Austin or from Washington or from yeah. City Hall. And I think yeah. they're rooted it's in just kind what of do you your, really think. Yeah, I think they're rooted in, in the experiences of people with the public schools. And, and, yeah. and, and so it's, it really is asking you kind of what do you think and what right. have you seen and well, how, how do you react to this question? So. You know, and I think, you know, you know, tying it back to the gun numbers a little bit, I mean, I think one of the things that you see here is when you move from the, the general to the specific in public policy, you often see a lot more nuance and a lot less overt partisanship when you get to actual policy prescriptions. And so you right. see that with the gun issue where we ask about, again, generally about the strictness, you know, you see everyone moving to their partisan camp. Right. 
But then when you ask about the specifics, like, should we do background checks? Well, then, you know, you still have 75% of Republicans saying, yes, same thing is true on an issue like abortion, where you ask about abortion generally, you get very polarized views, but then you start to ask about, you know, specific exceptions and you find Republicans saying, what about yeah, this? What about that? yes, Democrats yeah. about, you know, some extreme cases and they're right. like, oh, I'm not comfortable with that. And so you find a lot more overlap when you get to the specifics of policy. Yeah, and I think to be fair, we should, we should connect this back to, you know, the conversation of a few minutes ago about the speaker and political scandals. I mean, it's not that the public doesn't, there aren't thresholds and nuance in these things. It's just, I think that some, sometimes the things we pay attention to are not the things that people have deeper, more developed attitudes about. Right, mm -hmm. right. We just got a, a second here. I want to, we haven't asked a bunch about climate change over the course of this poll. <laughs> and I, I want to, you know, we're doing all this 10th anniversary stuff with the Tribune. Uh, you know, it's 10 years since we started doing this poll. We've got 30 or 40 polls in the can. It's wow. really very interesting, you know, and to look over time at these things. But one of the things that we haven't done a lot with is climate. And um, talk about talk about what we did there. You know, we started with, you know, do you think climate change is happening? Yeah, and overall, 66% uh, of Texans believe it is happening. 23% say it isn't, and 12% are unsure. But they're pretty big partisan differences. So while 88% of Democrats and 74% of independents said that climate change is definitely happening, among Republicans, 44% said it's happening. 42% say it's not. That's one of the most interesting results in this poll, I think. I actually like the secondary one was we ask him, how worried are you? And there's actually a decent number of people who say, yes, it's definitely happening. How worried are you? Not at all. Uh -huh. <laughs> I mean, it's not the, yeah. it is not yeah. the predominant position, right. but it, it's, yeah. it's not an insignificant. I, I, I think the Alfred E. Newman position is not a good sign for, of our species what me worry. likelihood of surviving. <laughs> well, hopefully we'll get another 10 years out of the trip pole before the ice caps melt. And well, I mean, <laughs> go, to go back to what you were just saying about, about, you know, guns and immigration, how much of this is that, you know, what we're seeing in the answers on climate change to some extent are cues that people have gotten from their leadership instead of people reading about this and being aware of a problem and having a, a formed opinion about it. A lot. Yeah, I mean, that's <laughs> a lot because that's kind of all, I mean, that's almost always the case. Right. Yeah. yeah, but I mean, I think on something like this, it's even more so the case in the sense that, you know, you're dealing with, you know, what is a long-term existential systematic crisis, which is very difficult for people to understand and conceptualize. It's also very, you know, it's, I mean, science is complicated, right? Right. And then you, again, you've got this long time horizon, this global reach. And so it's difficult for people to, to weigh all that out. And partisanship's a lot easier. And listening to the people that you trust for cues is, is what most people do. And so... Yeah. Well, and I think the other interesting thing it's to bring surprising. the third question in on this is that, you know, then we said, and we had asked this before, that, you know, how much should the U.S. government be doing about this? A great deal, a lot, moderate, a little. And I think that's where the partisan cues are actually very powerful mm -hmm. because it's a more familiar frame. When you ask people, what should government be doing? They've got a template for that, and that sorts more clearly on a partisan line. Just mm -hmm. a, a small comment. I'm actually, I'm always surprised at, uh, the extent to which the Republican Party has kind of planted its flag on, um, you know, whether climate change is occurring or not. No, in other words, I, I was one of the crazy people 10 years ago who said, I don't understand why the Republicans just don't concede on climate change because the relevant public policy questions, okay, well, what are you going to do about it? I think it's, right. a, you know, it's a very interesting question about, okay, this is happening. Do you think the actions of the federal government in the United States are really going to be that big a deal? Are you willing to give up a lot in order to purchase perhaps very little actual change, right? But Republicans didn't do that. So th this battery of three questions I think is interesting. Is it happening? 
how worried are you? And then should the government do something about it? The, the, the second and third, I think, are obvious places for partisan polarization where Republicans could clearly say, look, not that much to be done. We don't trust the government to do it right. But they went after the first one, you right. know, that it's not even happening. I just find that curious. And I think it shows the power of, you know, partisan cues and what we call in political sense motivated reasoning, which is, you know, if you want to reach a conclusion, you can find evidence to support that conclusion. Right. And, um, you know, to some extent, I think some of the scientists on the, you know, on the climate change part have kind of stepped into this a little bit and aided and abetted this kind of interesting attempt by Republican um, elites to, you know, kind of muddy the waters on it. Muddy yeah. the waters perhaps being the wrong phrase here. <laughs> We're out of time. We're going to have to leave it right there. Thanks again for another great poll. If you want to see the results of this, the summary of all the top line questions, the methodology, so you can answer your questions about how this was conducted. So you can email Josh. And the, right, and the crosstabs that tell you all the, you know, this group did that and that group did this um, are all online with the poll. So um, that's all the time we have this week. Thanks to, yes, sir. And if you're also a dork, the data sets are actually up. The actual data file is up now at the Texas Politics Project. Site. And all 30 plus other data sets. And all right. 30 plus other. So From the 10 years of the Texas Tribune. You Transparent can, beyond belief. You, <laughs> Well, you guys should get hired. Um, that's all the time we have this week. That's all the time I have right now. Uh, thanks to Raise Your Hand Texas and the Meadows Mental Health Policy Institute, our sponsors this week. An extra special thanks to Spoon for our theme music. On behalf of Josh, Jim, Darren, and our producers, Michael, Ray, and Todd, this is Ross. Thanks for listening.